0: The following program is sponsored by The National
1: Prayer Chapel You're listening to an Encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress We will not be taking calls today
0: Truth, I long to see. God said one day I'd be free. All trying led to failure. That's when. None of me. All of Jesus. All of Jesus. All of Jesus. None of me. glorious liberation and endless celebration when I found him in wondrous jubilee should you ask I'll gladly tell you of the key to our salvation all of Jesus None of me. All of Jesus. All of Jesus. All of Jesus. None of me. Jesus, none of me
1: Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. It is utterly impossible to live wrong and die right. We have a catastrophic situation facing us in America. And that is that we have believed a lie. We have believed a gospel that is no gospel. We've believed the lie that we could live wrong and somehow be right before God. We cannot live wrong and die right. Now, a part of the issue that has happened, and it's happened in my life and I know it's happened in yours, is that because of the worldliness of our age, we have lost a great portion of our capacity to have godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is not sorrow because we have committed a specific sin. Godly sorrow is a a state of our mind where we begin to comprehend how our whole culture and our whole life has been offensive to a holy God. It's the beginning of an understanding that we are at odds with the God of the universe, and that if that does not change, we will face the judgment bar of God and be cast into the fire. This is very difficult for us to even begin to get a hold of. It's difficult to even talk about Because everything is so fast paced and we have the pressures of job and money and and lifestyle. We have the pressures of all of the technology. Everything is instant fingertip stuff. This conscious awareness of the brokenness between us and the holy God takes time. It takes meditation. It takes reading of the scriptures before slowly, like on cat's paws, the presence of the Holy Spirit begins to come into our heart and into our life, and we begin to slowly begin to sense and feel in our spirit the brokenness between our hearts and God. But you see, when we believe that we're saved in our sin, We believe that we can live wrong and die right. There's no need for us to have any sense of this great divide between our life and the life of Jesus. And so we quickly brush it away as unconsequential or inconsequential. We brush it away. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it because we've believed a lie. Now, in my own life, I have now for some time been carefully cultivating, clinging to every move of the Holy Spirit as he identifies for me the great distance between my heart and Jesus, because I know that it's only with godly sorrow that I can understand how to repent You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not first and foremost an intellectual understanding. It's not knowledge-based. Now, the Christian faith has a great deal of knowledge that needs to be acquired. Knowledge of history, knowledge of theology. There's a great deal of understanding, but at the very simple base of the Christian faith, There is the wondrous God of heaven by the name of Jesus. And there is my sin and my brokenness. And I have to be able to get a hold of that great divide between my heart and the heart of God. And if I cannot begin to get a hold of that, I will then try to repent maybe for some specific action And then I'll go back and do it again, and I'll do it again, and I'll do it again. And each time I'll repent and say, I'm sorry. Without any deep understanding of the great divide between my heart and the heart of God. All of the gospel is about bringing my heart into the heart of God. And bringing God's heart into my heart. It's a marriage arrangement. It's a... It's an intense relationship that transforms and changes us into the likeness of Jesus. When we don't comprehend and we have no deep sorrow in our heart, then we will not truly repent and we will not be led into salvation. We'll be led into religion. We'll be led into a cultural understanding, but we will not be led into salvation. Now, part of what we have to understand is that the power of the blood of Jesus Christ was shed to save us from sinful action. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil in our lives. But if we're at peace with the work of the devil in our heart and we say we're saved, even though we act like the devil, then we'll never have godly sorrow. Now the church as we know it in the beginning of this 21st century is essentially utterly devoid of the great truth that the blood atonement of Jesus Christ is for the removal of our sins now in this life. I'm going to share with you some of the key salvation words today. I'm going to Give you the definition that is used in the scripture, and I'm going to give you the definition that is used in the modern reformed church. I want you to understand the difference because if these words are not freighted with the meaning found in scripture, they will mean nothing to us except that we're okay, that we're fine in our sin, all the while being lost. Sin inevitably brings death spiritually. It brings death and separation from God. And anyone who tells you that sin can be forgiven but not removed from your life is not speaking the truth. We cannot remain sinful in our state and at the same time look holy before God. And that is the claim of the modern church, that you remain sinful in your state, but you look holy before God because he doesn't see you when he looks at you. He sees himself. This is such a shell game of dishonesty the Lord God of heaven would never play a shell game. He would never be dishonest. But the modern church has created a whole system of theology that is utterly dishonest and Gnostic. Now, before I begin to share, let me talk for just a minute, please, about Gnosticism. And I want to talk to you about Gnosticism because it's the foundation... Of the modern church's theology. The Apostle John was very concerned about the beginnings of Gnosticism in his day. Let me explain. The simplest Gnostic belief Gnosticism is a secret knowledge, it is a a hidden knowledge, and if you have this hidden information, then you can be saved. Well, at the heart of that Gnostic belief, is that the flesh is wicked, but the spirit is righteous. And their example is that you can take a piece of gold, and you can put it in the sewer, so you have it filthy on the exterior. But all you have to do is lift that piece of gold up out of the sewer, and wash it, And the gold is pure gold. It is not affected by the sewer. And so they would say that the flesh is utterly wicked, but the inner part, the soul, the spirit of man, is righteous. And at the end of time, Jesus is going to come along and pick us up out of the sewer and he's going to wash away all of our sin. So this Gnostic belief has been adopted in the church, and it says you can walk in sin and still be saved. In fact, they say you cannot ever stop sinning because your outer person is sinful. The flesh, they say, is sinful, and so you can never overcome that sin. But not to worry, because Jesus has you covered, and you're righteous in his sight. He doesn't see your sin. You're saved. That is straight, unadulterated, heretical Gnosticism. And it's a lie. It's spoken with melodious words, but it is a lie. Now, I want to just very briefly look with you at the basic words we use to talk about the gospel. I want to share with you the, the meaning of the word as it's used today, and I want to share with you the biblical meaning of that word. Grace which is the primary word that is used by the Reformed believers, is twisted to mean that retribution can no longer be required for the sins of the believer because, they say, Christ paid for them on the cross. The payment, they say, was made in full. Hence, God cannot now charge a believer for sins because, they say, at the cross, all sins passed present, and future were forgiven. Now, if you listen to a pastor like Charles Stanley, he's one of the leaders in this teaching, he will say that if you continue to walk in sin, you will only deprive yourselves of some rewards once you get to heaven. And secondly, he says, you will deprive yourself of fellowship with God that you could be enjoying, but because of your sin, you're not enjoying, but nonetheless, you are still saved. That's Gnosticism. If we look carefully at Titus, the second chapter, verses 11 through 15, you'll see that grace is the divine influence of God in order that you might live free from your sin in this life. That it's not a a mystical provision in which we're able to continue walking in our sin, but we're saved by grace. The very essence of Christ's death is for deliverance from sin. Let me read this for you in the book of of Titus. Just so you know exactly what I'm saying. Titus, the second chapter, and I'll begin with verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation. Okay, so any grace that is spoken of that does not bring salvation is not biblical grace. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men the grace of god that brings salvation has appeared to all men it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from, apo in the Greek, meaning to separate from, meaning to put division between, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is right. So Titus is saying to the Apostle Paul, It's saying, look, grace is not a blanket that covers over. Grace is not going to cover and pretend you're righteous when you're still a sinner. Now, please, until you begin to get a hold of this, godly sorrow will be of no benefit to you, and without godly sorrow, you cannot be saved. It's as though for many many years people believed that the earth was flat and that if you ventured too far into the ocean you would drop off the edge of the earth they didn't understand that the earth was round they believed that it was flat they didn't just believe that it was flat they knew it was flat Anybody who knew anything knew the earth was flat. And then in the 1500s, Galileo was born. And everybody absolutely knew that the sun revolved around the earth and that all of the planets revolved around the earth. They knew it. They could prove it to you. See, the sun rises in the morning and see the sun sets in the evening, so they could bring out all of their proofs. And when Galileo invented a better astronomy instrument, telescope, he demonstrated that in fact the earth revolved around the sun. Well, when he did that, the Catholic Church became very, very upset. This was considered heresy. Everybody knew that the earth was the center of everything. Sound familiar? We think Jesus is going to revolve around us. We believe that Jesus, the Son, is revolving around our earth and that we're the center of the universe. I hate to tell you, if we don't revolve around Jesus, we're going to die. Well, Galileo was forced to recant. And because he didn't want to be burned at the stake, he agreed that he would no longer teach that the earth revolved around the sun. And then he was put under house arrest for the rest of his life. Well, today, everybody knows. You just go talk to anybody, and they'll say, nobody can live without sin. I just talked to a Buddhist man this morning, and he said to me, Pastor, every religion, everybody knows, whether you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim, everybody knows. The fact is, we all sin. All we can do is do our best. All we can do is try. And he said, as a Buddhist, I go to the temple and and I meditate and I do these things because I'm constantly trying to improve myself. I want to be a better person. Well, it's quite a shock to discover that all of the religions believe basically the same thing. But it's a lie. You cannot be saved by self improvement. And something is not going to happen at the end of the world where Jesus suddenly shows up and takes away our sin. That's why he came to the cross, that's why he died on Calvary to take away our sin. But as soon as I say that, many of you rise up in your hearts and you say, come on, Pastor, it's impossible for us to live without sin. We know the earth is flat. We know the earth revolves or the sun revolves around the earth. We know these things. Do you? It's not what the scriptures teach. Titus is very clear. Let me read it to you again the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to redeem us from wickedness, not that we should continue to walk in it and live in it and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is right. So the purpose of Jesus' coming was to bring the divine influence and the power of his blood so that we could walk clean before him and not continue to walk in sin. But you see, if you deny this and you say that I'm covered by the grace of God and I'm saved, then you have no need of godly sorrow. You have then no ability for true repentance And then you have a pretend salvation buried in the husks of religion that is just like the Buddhist or the Hindu or any of the other world religions, everybody trying to improve themselves. Is that really the Christian gospel? I mean, what does this Buddhist man have to see to begin to understand that there's something different about Christian faith? He has to see a man or woman who walks without sin. He has to hear the joyous testimony of the deliverance of the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you have that testimony? If you don't have that testimony, then you're walking in one of the world religions, but you're not saved. You see, the word grace has been freighted with a false meaning, and it devastates the believer, and it steals from us the very heart, the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that not only did he come to forgive us for our sins, aphemy, the Greek word translated forgive, Aphemy means to separate from, to leave behind. So Jesus didn't come to just expunge our sin, to forgive us our sins. He came to Aphemy. He came to separate us from our sins. Now we come to another word. The word faith. It is twisted in today's church to mean the act of a moment that eternally secures the believer by faith for salvation, apart from obedience to the moral law of God. So God's laws are being broken, but nevertheless, a man claims by faith that he is saved. He sees these transgressions or transgressors as holy. He sees a man who walks in sin as holy in their standing, while in their state they remain sinful in this life. So this word faith, pistis, We go back to Martin Luther. He quoted out of the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. But that word faith in the Hebrew means absolute fidelity to. Fidelity. In the New Testament, faith means I am absolutely persuaded. But what am I persuaded of? The biblical faith is that I am absolutely persuaded that by the blood of Jesus Christ, my sins have been wiped away, both that I have committed and the sinful nature, and I have been cleansed by Jesus, and I no longer walk in those sins. I have faith to believe that I no longer have to sin against God, that I am set free, that every bondage has been broken. In fact, I'll take it further. The sign that a person has been born again is that they have the power to say no to all sin. If you cannot say no to all sin and are swept away time after time by that sin and you have no power to resist it, you have not been born from above. You've simply been born into a religion and into a culture that is dead and has no power. Many of you listening to this broadcast find yourself very religious, but very sinful, because you do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ set you free of your sins. Now, I have to be honest with you, there are reasons why we don't want to believe what I'm teaching. Because if I can believe that I am saved and I am on my way to heaven and I am comforted in the midst of my sin, that means I never have to be crucified. But Jesus said, if you would follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus does not say, just believe some intellectual information about what I did for you at the cross, and then you're home free and you're saved. Jesus does not say that. He says, deny yourself. In other words, he will give you the power to say no to all wickedness. And when he gives you the power, you must take it. And again, if you do not walk this way before Jesus, you will never have revival in your life. The teaching of the modern church has destroyed the work of revival in history. There has to be a reformation before there can be a revival. There has to be a true reformation that uncovers the reality of our real condition before a holy god i know it's much more comfortable to simply believe i'm saved and now i'm going to do the best i can do then you might as well be a buddhist or a hindu you might as well be a a muslim you might as well believe anything you want to believe because you're not saved You're not saved. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. And that salvation only comes through the cross of Jesus. And you must be crucified, and you must come through that cross in victory and walk free of sin on the other side. This is done by the power of the blood of Jesus Holiness is not something that we try to create. Holiness is a free gift of God. But let me go further. There's another word, righteousness. Righteousness in the modern church is twisted to mean that the believer is simply counted as righteous rather than actually being made righteous by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. But you say to me, but wasn't Abraham accounted as righteous? Yeah, the reality is that word in the Hebrew means to inventory. So God came to Abraham and inventoried his life, and there was real righteousness there that he had received from the God of heaven. And his obedience demonstrated that real obedience in his heart. And he was inventoried as being righteous. Then we have another word, and I'm going to come back to righteous in a moment. The word, no, maybe I ought to finish it right now. The word righteous, we have twisted to mean justified. And by justified, the modern church means, and even John Wesley had difficulty with this word. When you read the writings of John Wesley, you'll find that he gets tangled up in the legal definition of the word justified. The experience of the Wesleyans was at odds with the legal wording that was sometimes used in their sermons. That error in judgment on Wesley's part resulted today in Wesleyanism being basically dead and ready for a shovel of dirt to be thrown on it. The experience of Wesley in holiness is utterly departed from the Wesleyan and the Methodist church. It's just, it's gone. So let's talk about this word, how it was twisted, how the word righteousness, dekesune, was twisted. And the word justified was twisted because justified comes from the ancient English word which meant in the old day made righteous. But it was twisted to mean a coded meaning and that coded meaning in the word justified brought to us by Martin Luther, John Calvin, and some of the other reformers. This word justified is twisted to mean a legal declaration that a person was forgiven at the cross it's twisted to mean that Jesus forgave you for past, present, and future sins. And so you can continue to walk today in your Gnostic understanding of, I can live in sin and I'm still saved. And so the word justified came to mean that. But if you look in the context of the Scriptures To be declared righteous is only applicable for the Old Covenant where the blood of bulls and goats covered a person but did not forgive a person. Forgiveness for the Old Testament was contingent upon the death of Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, all in the Old Testament who were hidden under the blood, under the blanket of bulls and goats and heifers, all of their sins were forgiven. Today, the blood of Jesus is not like the blood of bulls and goats. It does not cover over. It wipes away the sin, and it separates us from our sin. But you see, again, this is the issue. We cannot have godly sorrow when we quickly assume that we're saved based on a Gnostic understanding of the gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a flat earth gospel. It's a gospel that says, everything revolves around me. It doesn't. We revolve around the Son, Jesus Christ, and he's righteous. And so, I'll just, I'll turn to it very quickly for you. Uh, Let's go very quickly just to the book of Romans in the sixth chapter. Romans, the sixth chapter. He's spoken about grace that reigns through righteousness to bring eternal life. And then he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, or absolutely not. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And that new life is a righteous life. So, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with. That is current experience in the Scripture. It's not a future experience. It's a current experience for a person who has been baptized into Jesus Christ. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. that simple. Now if we look over here in the third chapter of the book of Romans verse 23 it says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And then it says and are justified freely by his grace. Well, if you translate that word justified to mean that I was forgiven, but I continue to walk in my sin, then you must also translate grace as a covering. But charis or grace does not mean covering. It means divine influence. But if you translate that word, verse 24, Romans 3, verse 24, all have fallen short of the glory of God and are made righteous freely by His grace, then it fits the rest of the Apostle Paul's teaching. See, we need to understand we are not declared righteous And then considered saved. We must be also delivered from our sin. And so the word justified almost everywhere in the Western world's Christian understanding means I'm forgiven. And then when we add to that the lie that God's love is unconditional we have a recipe for absolute disaster. And one dear woman said to me, Pastor, I think it's too late for me. I said, no. No, Jesus loves you. It's not too late for you. Many of you have taken the Kool-Aid of the modern church. And you have thought you were saved while you still walked in your sin. But you weren't. And now that you know what the Scripture says and what the words mean, you're held responsible. And now the opportunity for godly sorrow to begin to grow in your heart is being brought to you by the Holy Spirit an awakening of your spirit, a recognition that by the blood of Jesus you can be forgiven, but to be forgiven is also to be separated, aphemy, from your sins. That reality needs to settle deep into our hearts. We need to understand that we cannot live wrong and die right. This is not Self-improvement 101. This is transformation. This is total change. This is coming to terms with a holy God. This is coming to terms with the sin we have committed against him and then how we have been lied to to convince us that we can continue to walk just trying to do our best and that that's all Jesus expects No, that's not what Jesus expects. That's legalism. He's not expecting us to do our best. He's expecting us to get on that cross and die out and totally surrender our life to him and give to him everything about us and to ask him, to invite him, to earnestly seek after him, that he would come by the power of his Spirit and make us into new creatures. Now there's another word that is twisted. And that's the word atonement. It's twisted to mean that all the sin of the believer, past, present, and future, was forgiven And acquitted at the cross by penal sanctification or punishment. That Jesus was, that God punished God at the cross. That's such an ugly image. God punishing God. I don't believe it for a second. Jesus did not come and receive the punishment of all the sin of every person throughout the ages. If so, he would still be being punished. No, Jesus came and offered his life as an atoning sacrifice, as the Lamb of God. Yes, he was crushed for our iniquity. Yes, he bore the sin of every person. But he was an atoning lamb the power was in the blood. Now, I need to talk to you about two kinds of atonement. The modern Reformed theology of the sinning Christian emphasizes active and passive atonement. For this system of belief, active atonement means that Christ was actively obedient for believers during the incarnation. In other words, Jesus walked on the earth and was obedient, and that obedience becomes our obedience. Passive obedience means that he bore the judgment of God and punishment for sin for the believer on the cross. Thus, the theory of active atonement That Christ can be obedient for another person and that his obedience can be counted to the believer even while sinning, and that's called mysticism. It is not morally possible for one to be obedient for another, obedience is not transferable. Every man is punished for his sin. The only way you can escape punishment for your sin is for Jesus Christ to shed his blood. But in the shedding of that blood, we do not have transferred to us his obedience because now we are expected to walk in obedience. And every man is going to be judged according to what he has done. We are not saved by our obedience. We are saved by the blood of Jesus. We are saved by the holiness that Jesus puts into our lives by that shed blood. None of it is of us. It is all of faith. Now, the atonement is a precious and complicated thing to understand. I'm going to be studying the atonement through all of the ages in the future to try to fully understand what it is that God really did at Calvary. But I can tell you right now what he did at Calvary in no way will excuse a sinner who insists on continuing in his sin. It simply will not happen. Now, there's another word. We have just a few more minutes in this broadcast. Let me try to wrap up this part today, and then tomorrow we're going to go into what is sin and what must one do in order to be saved and what is meant by being saved. But just very briefly, the word word saved is twisted to mean that were saved from condemnation and the wrath to come, while at the same time denying that the blood of the Savior is powerful enough to save me from the power and the practice of sin in this life. Now, this is the air of the Reformed theology, this is the air of many Baptist churches many Presbyterian churches, many Grace churches, many Covenant churches, they all believe this lie that I'm able to continue living wrong and still be saved. This is the air of this Reformed theology. It is literally a denial of the very heart of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. It denies that the blood of Jesus has the power to deliver me. Now, such is the air that can neither comprehend the power of the blood to save nor the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It absolutely will bring spiritual death to your heart. It finds its roots, again, in the ancient Gnosticism, claiming that sin done in the body cannot hurt the spirit. Thus, it is imperative that we understand the power and the unlimited ability of the blood to completely save from the wrath to come and to break the power of sin over the believer in this life, that the power of sin is broken, is essential, and must be understood. Now, please understand as I share this with you, there is a heaven to win and a hell to miss. There is an absolute necessity that we have a godly sorrow for our sin as we begin to understand the great gap between us and a righteous God. And we can't smooth that over with some Gnostic belief that we can continue to live wrong and die right. I've been praying, O Lord, would you begin to awaken your people to their true condition before you as a holy God, that before it's too late they would turn from their sin and receive the power of the blood to deliver them both from their sin and from the ongoing life of sin. There must be an awakening. I don't know how to say it any plainer. There must be an awakening. America is being destroyed. America has become utterly godless because we have in the pulpit given permission for people to continue to walk in their sins thinking they're saved. Now, we're coming to the end of the month. We have not even nearly begun to meet the need for radio for next month to pay this month's bill. I want to give you an address. It's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I would love to hear from you. Now, I have to tell you, after presenting this today in the spirit, I just feel such a heaviness in my heart. I feel crushed in my spirit. Because this mountain is so huge. This belief is so common that it's impossible to even begin to deal with it except by the spirit of the living God. And I'm going to spend the rest of this day just crying out, Oh, God. Deliver us. Deliver your people. Let the light of your gospel pierce the darkness of America that we could begin to understand and have godly sorrow for our sin. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. God bless you. I'm praying for you. Read the scriptures. Read the sixth chapter of Romans. Plead for a for a sincere sense of your sin and repent God bless you I'll talk to you soon